Welcome to the Building Lives Podcast, hosted by Joe Fury. We're a show that deals with healing, restoring, and navigating relationships. We post to YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Building Lives. Uh, Today, we have a special, uh, special episode. We're going to be talking about racial reconciliation. One of the key points we need to know in this discussion we're having is that we may not all agree on everything, but we agree on the importance of loving one another. So we're gonna share uh, multiple different ways and on a number of different topics. And I first wanna introduce my guest today, uh, two of my dear friends, uh, Chris Jones, who was a former uh, skinhead. Daniel Lynham, who was a uh, former head of the Black Panthers in Orange County. And of course, I was the leader of the Italian uh, mafia. (laughs) In your own mind. In my own mind. (laughs) (laughs) We were a loving group. (laughs) So I'd like to start out today with just uh, getting your a little bit of your backstory for the people and uh, your journey of uh, how you started and what happened. So why don't we start with you, Daniel? Okay. Uh, Well, first I was born. (laughs) But my my parents came from, my dad was, uh, came from Indiana. My mom came from Kentucky. So my grandmother still lived in Kentucky. She was a school teacher, old school schoolhouse, you know, back in the country in the day. So growing up, my mom would send me back there periodically from time to time. And so during this time, which was the early 50s, of course, Jim Crow was the law of the land. So it was it was very, very real. So I had those experiences, you know, back there in terms of, of, of race and, and racism. I, I experienced the Jim Crow, the strict separation, the... Uh, uh, segregation. The, the segregation, the water fountains for the coloreds and the water fountains and the, the separate bathrooms and uh, the stores and the restaurants that would say we don't serve negroes or we don't serve you here so i i i experienced all of that you know there and then coming back here uh, living in orange county orange county at the time was very very conservative as i'm sure some people would remember and uh the 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 organization that really had a grip here politically was the John Birch Society. So we as black people considered the John Birch Society to be halfway between the Republican Party and the KKK. So my experience here was was racism. It was more direct. Uh, Still the attitude of segregation and separation was here, but they didn't have the force of law like they had in the South. And me growing up in Santa Ana, especially was in the 50s, you know, the, the racism was pretty intense. And so in school, like when I went to elementary school, for example, uh, it was just me and my next door neighbor. We were the only two black kids in the school. And, and I never will forget a time. This was an incident that happened. I was in the fourth grade. And um, every day when we would walk to school, there would be a group of five or six white kids and they would at a certain we'd get to a certain point on the way to school and they'd pop up out of the bushes and throw rocks at us you know and they wow. but they they stayed further enough away but they would throw rocks and just be going nigger 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 and that happened every day it happened on the playground 
when we're do, doing research. So I go home and tell my mom, I says, Mom, these kids are doing this like every day on the playground. She said, tell the teacher. And I'm like, the teacher's standing right there watching and not saying it. She said, well, you need to say something. So I said something to the teacher, and the teacher says, you need to go see the principal. His name was Mr. Emily. And so she walks me over to his office. And I remember I go in his office, and she sits down. He looks at her, and he says, close the door. And she walked out. And he looked at me, and he leaned across the table, and he said, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, these kids are over here throwing rocks at us and calling us niggers. And he says, what's the problem with that? He said, you are a nigger. Oh, and he said, let me tell you something. He says, you were born a nigger. He said, you'll live a nigger. You'll always be a nigger. He says, you will never be better than white people. He said, don't you think anything about that? And then he grabbed me and walked me across the playground. And he sat me down. He says, he says you're not allowed on this side of the playground. He said, don't ever let me catch you on this side of the playground. You know. So my friend falls, hurts his knee. So... We're the only two blacks. I got to support him. So I'm like, I'm going to walk him to the nurse's office, right? So I go to the nurse. As soon as I walked in, the nurse gets on the phone. Emily walks into the, into the nurse's office. He looks at me, and he grabs me from behind my neck, and he picks me up. He said, you little nigger. He said, I told you never come over here. And he walks me across and then slams me down on this, on this, this uh, table, you know? And so I remember reaching behind my neck, and it was bleeding, you know, he had literally picked me up. So I went home and told my dad, and my dad said, he said, I know Emily. He said, I work with him in the post office. He said, he's, he's a card-carrying KKK. So there was a KKK chapter in Orange County. I re I've seen pictures of it and everything. And so, uh, so that was my experience in elementary school. But you know one thing I never did? I never, never just developed like, I just hate white people. You know, I always judge people individually, you know, and because uh, I had white friends too, you know, and I had good experiences with white people. So I never took that attitude like I just hate all white people because of that one experience. And so, but even in, in junior high school, we were very separated. We experienced segregation, you know. I know in the prison system, you know, the racial politics are pretty heavy. But even at schools, it was the same way. Teachers, in high school, teachers would call us names and, and so on and so forth. And we were treated different. We knew it. I, every day I woke up in my life, I felt like I was reminded. Something would happen to remind me that I was black, you know. So that I, was, I never could escape that. Yeah. So we were always, there was conflict and we were running into these type of things. So, so that was kind of my thing. And then in the 60s when I... Uh, uh, experiencing these things, I wanted to do something about it. You know, I thought, you know what, we got to fix this. We need to fight back. That's when I got introduced to the Black Panther Party. And so it was very attractive to me because I thought we could do something. I already had a militant mindset. I wasn't about the NAACP or Martin Luther King, you know, march and let people beat on you, that kind of thing. I was more about, let's, we're going to fight. So I was drawn to the Black Panther Party for that. And so, uh, so that kind of occupied my life for about three or four years from there. So that was kind of my initial experiences that kind of shaped me in terms of my views on race and, and racism. Yeah. What was it like being in the Black Panther Party? It was interesting because the Black Panther Party wasn't, we weren't a group that, we were very political. So we were, uh, uh, we latched on to Marxism big time. We latched on to like 
Chairman Mao, you know, China was very communistic at that point in time, and Mao Zedong had led the revolution there. And, uh, and then we studied uh, Marx and Lenin and Stalin, so we were very Marxist. So we weren't, we, we would draw, we would actually make alliances with anybody regardless of race. And so we developed alliances with the Mexican community. When they developed the Brown Berets, uh, there was a group out of the South that was uh, it was considered the white group. They were Appalachians, you know, the Young Patriots, what was the name of them. So we sought to develop, you know, those type of uh, 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 relationships with just about anybody. But of course, race played a role, you know, and uh, all the police that we'd run into were always all white. You know, it wasn't really hurting any black police officers uh, or anything in Santa Ana, where I grew up. And so that was kind of the environment, I guess you could say, that we were in. What would be the political goal of the Black Panthers? Well, because we were revolutionaries. Our heroes was like uh, Che Guevara. So we actually had a revolutionary mindset where we... I don't know why anybody would think this in America, but we wanted to overthrow the government and install uh, a socialist government, you know, with socialism. Crazy idea. You know, I remember at one point in time, I sat down and was really thinking about this, and I thought, wait a minute, they got all the guns and the tanks, you know, and the jets? That had never happened. But the party actually began to transition into becoming more involved politically, locally. I remember at one point in time, Bobby Seale, one of the founders, ran for mayor of Oakland. And uh, Elaine Brown, who, who was also uh, one of the stronger members of the party, she ran for city council. I think eventually she got elected in the city council. And so, so we became political. We became very community-orientated, where we had a Breakfast for Children program. We had a, a medical clinics. We worked with, I remember we worked with elderly people, helping them like get to their doctor's appointments, picking up prescriptions. We got very, very involved in, in the community and doing community work. And of course, we were very anti-police too at the same time. All right, thank you, Daniel. Hey, Chris, let's talk about your story for a sure. second. Well, okay, so I grew up in a, I mean, I'm going to say I grew up in a regular dysfunctional American home, you know, a regular dysfunctional, broken American home. Um, uh, my parents weren't racist. Um, uh, fairly, I'm just going to say a fair, you know, we weren't rich. We were middle class, lower middle class. You know, I think there was a time where we were poor. I, mean, we, I grew up in Phoenix. My, my dad and my mom um, had me in Oklahoma City and when I was two they moved from Oklahoma to Phoenix Arizona where I grew up and it was you know downtown Phoenix um, and um, first of all I'm a single uh, and only child so I've had to overcome oh, I am too. I've had to I overcome all that yeah. <laughs> yes that's right. I didn't know you were only What's child up, dog? <laughs> yeah. yes I'm You're also a narcissist no <laughs> Recovering. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, you can either be successful or you can be a parent. You know what I'm saying? And, and um, <laughs> to the success, I think that they wanted to achieve. Anyway, everybody had to go to work. So I was a latchkey kid. MTV raised me. I'm not sure what it was, 
but it was like one day I was skateboarding to school and I was like, you know what? I quit. I quit. Didn't you find punk music around that? Right there. I, I, yeah, as soon as somebody played me one punk rock song, I was like, oh, this is who I am. Yes, I'm angry. Yes, I relate to this. This is who I am. Yeah, so my mom came out on the driveway one time. I'm smoking a cigarette. I'm like 15 years old, smoking a cigarette. She says, hey, I'm leaving your dad. I'm moving to California. And I said, no, at least you get to leave. <laughs> She moved to California. My dad, um, you know, uh, didn't want to put up with a, a drug addict, selfish little, you know, teenager. So he kicked me out of the house, you know, which I, I understand today. And I don't know how to do anything, man, you know. Um, so I thank God that I've got a little bit of charisma. I think that got me, you know, that talked my way into some places and through some things and I was able to shuck and jive and have a, you know, a couple girlfriends that had it going on and I started learning how to deal drugs and I never was good at it. I was never good at it. You're your own best customer <sighs> and you fronted yourself. How do people make money at this? <laughs> and when I, the first time I shot heroin was 16, I was 16. First time I shot up, um, I was 16 and I was like, oh yeah, okay, finally, the voices are gone, mm -hmm. you know, mm, okay. And, and, uh, and obviously when you start, you know, sticking a needle in your arm, the, 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 uh, just the, um, the consequences started happening. So that's why I spent most of my time locked up began to experience, you know, seg the segregation that happens when you're locked up and it's automatic. I look back at my life now and I realize how lost I've always been looking for, you know, just wanting to belong somewhere, not knowing what I'm doing at all, feeling like it at least, you know. And so now I begin to get locked up and I see that the stronger guys that are white are committed to this you know this uh perception and same with the guy the strong blacks the strong mexicans they all hang together they're all we go as a group and i'm learning that you know it's us against them and and you know and then you know as i'm getting locked up you know there's riots over things like tennis shoes you know and you know, jumpsuits and ridiculous things like that, that I'm literally going to blows, you know, with people over. I committed to this, to the, to the life. Cause I, I didn't ever think I was going to be anything more than a convict. I didn't think, in fact, you know, when you think about progressing in your life, I was trying to look for ways to progress on the yard because I thought that, you know, it's only a matter of time when they let me out before I'll be back in here. So I might as well make a name for myself. I might as well start, you know, working. And so that's pretty much, you know, what began to happen in my teen years, in my early 20s, as I started going to prison and stuff, is just the commitment level started to rise because I was hopeless. Thought that'd be your life. Yes. So... And, and, and I, I, I want to say something because it's real. And I, I pray that 
this will minister to someone. The whole time, you know, the whole time I was getting locked up, you know, there would be these moments, and I'm sure you can think of one yourself, Daniel. There'd be these moments in prison or, you know, in county jail or something where I would come in contact with, with, with a black man. And nobody's around, it might be in the library, it might be the nurse or something. But, you know, it was like, I'm looking for, I, you know, I'm looking for a pen or something. And, and he hands me a pen. Here you go, man. Hey, thanks. You know what I'm saying? Like, there was those moments where I, I, I would, it would. You weren't adversarial. It would rock me because I would be like, I don't hate this guy. I don't hate him. But I have to hate him. And so I just, I say that because it was, it's real. And, and, and I, I pray that it touches the heart of somebody that maybe didn't think about that or, 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 you know, they might still be locked up in the ignorance of thinking that a race is actually superior to another. Um, but hate is a learned behavior, I believe. I, I, I don't think we're born to hate. I think we're taught to hate each other, and that's what happened to me. And uh, I, I went to the full extent of getting tattooed, you know, white power on my stomach and swastikas everywhere, and I'm all in, you know, and I tried to join a gang, but they wouldn't let me in. You know, I think that's the sovereignty of God. It was one of those times when it was a gang called the Nazi Lowriders at the time that uh, their doors were shut. And I'm, I'm blessed by that today. Um, I woke up in Santa Ana. Um, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning and one of the Southsiders was singing. And they woke me up. And I said, shut up. <laughs> I screamed, shut up. And the next day, there were 15 Southsiders on the roof that were going to jump me and beat me up. And I remember going, this is my life. And I mean, I had already, you know, I've done a lot of time. It's not like I have a name, but I've made a name. And I'm like, this is what my life has summed up to. I'm about to get down with some Southsiders on the roof over nothing. And I remember, I, I don't know how I talked my way out of it, but I did. And, um... I remember I called my parole officer and I said, look, man, because I'm going to Chino and I'm waiting on the bus. And I said, you have no reason to trust me. And I understand that. But if you let me out and just let me go to a rehab or something, let me try. Because I've never tried to get sober. Never tried not drinking or using. Let me try that. And, 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 and let's see what happens. And he goes, okay, but if you fart, I am, I am going to violate you for the full extent of four years. Or, you know, you're going to do it all. Fine. I finally got sober and, you know, I, I started going to AA and I started working a program because for me, I was so far from God and, um, I couldn't barely, st I could stomach uh, a God of my own understanding. That was enough leeway for me to like, all right, fine. You know, I can, I can get down with like 
somebody created all this. I could swallow that. That's about all I could do. You know, so I, uh, you know, I, I think I had about, I had, I had about five years of sobriety when my wife resented AA because I, I actually. So you had been released. I had been, I, I had been released from prison. I had met my then girlfriend at a bar in Long Beach, who's now my wife. Um, total dysfunction, but yes, our, our sicknesses brought us together. And, and I, you know, she had a job and a car, and I said, you know what, you're lucky. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna parole to your house next time. <laughs> next time I violate, I'm paroling to your house, and I did. I switched my my because I was on parole in L.A. I switched my parole to Orange County and I moved in with my wife. Anyway, um, I, you know, I started doing good and, and, and doing the deal. And, and um, she didn't like AA because she wasn't a part of it, man. And I, I just was all into that because I didn't want to, like, I didn't want to go back to prison anymore. I didn't want to do that. And they told me that if I did this, I would get this. Well, I, you know, I took it way too far, like I do everything, you know. And I ignored her. You know, and she was pregnant with Slater. And, you know, there were things that I could have done. I was in a band and it was all about me mm -hmm. still. And, um, you know, I paid a price for that. But um, to stay on track, I, 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 she began to go to church. It was her. She's like, hey. You know, um, so-and-so's from this band is going to this church. And I know you want a gig with him. Maybe if you start going to church, you know, he'll give you a gig. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. I should probably go. I'll go. I'll go in and check it out. And that's what I'll do. And I went to church. Another thing happened, too, that I, I was significant is that my wife had my kids around the dinner table and they were praying. Mm. And I remember getting super angry and, and, and I, cause I was mad and I, and I, I remember, and it, I don't think it was a, a, an audible as much as it was this feeling of what you going to fight me. It was from God, you know, are you going to fight me or are you going to start doing what I've called you to do and it was like that it was like are you gonna fight because it made me mad mm -hmm. and I don't know why but it did and it was at that moment that I was like oh okay you know and I can probably get a gig out of this too and I'll be doing the right thing mm -hmm. I got super saved the Holy Spirit rocked me that's when I got born again you know, I had said the prayer, you know, years, four years prior in a, in, a, in a rehab, right? And I'll just let everybody's theology take over with that. But but I got born again. I mean, it was like I still had to go through the process of saying praise God and not did anybody hear me? You know what I mean? Ah, thank, thank you, Jesus. 
you know, did anybody hear me? Like, it was still this. It was a wrestling with my flesh and conviction of, do I really want to be a Jesus freak? And what I want to hold on to my whatever I thought I was. And, um, you know, thank God I chose, you know, I, I think, excuse me, thank God the Lord touched me in such a way that I couldn't deny him ever again. I remember I'd, I'd be reading the Bible, the same Bible that I would rip pages out of and roll up cigarettes and marijuana in prison and county jail, you know. I would hold the Bible on my chest after I read what I read. And it would just warm my whole body. Like, that's, you know, like I can't just go do what I used to do knowing what I know now. I had crossed the line of accountability. And that was a sobering moment for me because it was like, I'm a Christian. That's the way it is. That's the line in the sand. And um, I remember, you know, I've been challenged on that commitment, you know, <laughs> since then. But I remember that's that's what happened. You know, that's why I sit here today and, and, and I, I can just bask in my friendship with Daniel. I mean, and I would like to, you know, whenever we can transition to that, I want to get into the exhortation part of getting to know this man. Let me ask you another uh, question. When did uh, the idea start crossing into your mind that I should get some of this white power stuff off me? Some of the, you know, what, what started to take place there in the whole race issue? So again, you know, so when, I, when we first started talking about this, you know, I said hate is something that's learned. It isn't born into a human being, it's, it's learned. It's when I got, you know, when, when, when I, when I got sober and, and I decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to support a family. I'd like to be a husband. You know, my wife had our stepdaughter at the time. He was 11, 12 years old. Um, I need to get a job. I need to, I need to earn money legally. Um, so I began to do that kind of stuff. And, and um, we had my son Slater, then we had my daughter Gibson, and they begin to play soccer. Normal, mm -hmm. family, life. And they would have soccer parties, soccer swim parties. And they're young enough to it's soccer swim parties with the parents. So you're in, you're in the pool with your kids. Mm -hmm. And it was like, dude, I gotta take off my shirt at a soccer party and white power doesn't have the same effect there as it does at Soledad as it does at San Quentin. You know what I mean? As it, as it does on the yard. It's a little, you know, it's uncomfortable, you know, to say the least. And I, you know, and, and I knew this isn't who, this isn't who I want to be. This isn't who... This isn't who I am, and this isn't who I truly am. And um, it was hard because there's pride there. There's a pride there that you have to get over. You know, um, um, being drilled into my head, white pride. Mm -hmm. 
be proud of your race. You know, that has to die. Um, the pride of I've been smashing people, you know, I've been in control, you know, in this realm where fear when I can when I can make you afraid of me, it has gives me the illusion of power. Mm. You see what I'm saying? There's and that that doesn't work in the real world. It doesn't work. You don't you don't make your child's principal fear you when they've had a problem at school. You see what I mean? That doesn't work anymore. I'm gonna smash you unless you let my kid, you know, no. You don't do that. You have to learn, oh, oh. And so it was more of a reality set in for me to get my like to get belief my heart system right. that you had no this longer. isn't working you it know it hasn't yeah. worked and now i'm confirming that it doesn't work mm -hmm. because it doesn't work with love mm -hmm. segregation separation hate does not work in unity and love love is unity love is us mm -hmm. love is 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 how can how can we add? We are better together. You know, um, that doesn't work. And even when it comes down to something as simple as having a family, hate isn't going to work if I'm teaching my kids to love. Mm -hmm. And if I want to teach my kids how to love and not be a racist, what's up with your stomach, Dad? Right? Yeah. So... Yeah. Needless to say, now I have mm -hmm. a hot rod there. And <laughs> it's you got it replaced? Yeah, I got it replaced. Okay, yes. All right, all right. So when I would go to jail, I started going to jail when I was 18 years old. I was very aware of the racial politics in there. It was very, very separated and segregated. And also going into prison, of course, the politics were there. But when I got to, by the time I got to prison where I was going to serve my time, I had already given my life to Christ. I was a Christian, you know. So we were a separate gang. And so the Christians were the only group that could integrate, you know, because right. you had white Christians. You know what's up yep. with that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you had white Christians, Mexican Christians, you know, whatever. We could, we could eat together and we could run together, hang out together and do stuff together, but nobody else could. You know, so it was very, very, uh, it, the racial politics to me was very interesting. There was a, a riot breaks out, you know, on one of the yards, and it was a race riot. You know, when you were talking about people would riot over dumb stuff, a pair of tennis shoes, well, the riot breaks out on the other yard over a radio. See, you know what I mean. See what I'm saying? Yeah, over, and it's going off. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, there's people are like, "We're, I'm killing you." Yeah, you, you had your radio too loud. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy stuff. So we, so we're on the, we're on our yard, and so all of this, uh, we could hear it over there. And pretty soon, you know, you could feel the tension. You know, tension. You could cut it with a knife. You know, all that. And so it was myself, another black guy. Uh, a Mexican brother and a white guy. We were on the yard together. And so I said, hey, you guys, I said, you know what? I said, let's, we need to pray and we need to go lock up, you know. 
I says, because, uh, you know, something's getting ready to jump off here. So we sat under this tree. We prayed and everything. And just as we were going inside, we, I look across the yard, and this black guy, because the word came to us that the riot on the other yard, the white guys were taking a beating, and the black guys were winning over there. And so... Uh, and so they they cornered this black guy back behind this building, stabbed him, and so he was stabbed. And so the black guys began to jump white guys on the yard. And usually, and you might can, you know what I'm saying, the white guys that were left on the yard had nothing to do with it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, all the guys who were the you know part of the gang and everything, they had they were going locking up. You know, so the white guys. The average guys, they're just out there. So they started beating these guys, you know, and they would just jump them. They'd say, there's one, and they'd run and want to jump that guy. And so I hear this scuffle next to me, and I turn around, and this white guy that we're with, the white Christian guy, he's on the ground, and about four or five guys are pummeling this guy. I mean, the blows, the kicks, I was like, oh, my God. And instinctively, I just stepped up. I remember I put my hand, and I said, stop. I said, you leave this man alone, you know? And they stopped, you know, and they looked at me crazy, and they, and they took off running. And my friend was there, and he stood up, and he was hurt, and he was scared. And so all the guys on the, you could hear the black guys go, there's one, get him. And he looked at me, and I said, hey, bro, I should just run. You know, I said, just run. And he takes off running across the yard, and he was trapped. Black guys were coming on all sides. He would stop and he would turn this way and they were there. He was literally trapped. I said the shortest prayer in my life. I said, Lord, save him, you know. And this, um, uh, this guard showed up out of nowhere, you know. They, they were shooting at this. They were shooting in, up, up above in the trees and, and everything, but nobody was stopping. And this guard shows up and we're looking and we're going, who is that guard? You know, so that we thought that was a little, little odd. But the guy runs to the guard. The guard takes him. And, you said and you told me you've never seen that guard before. We'd never seen that guard before, and we were looking at each other like, "What?" And in our minds, we're all thinking, "Is that an angel?" You know, type of thing. And so, I mean, we we eventually said, "Yes, it had to be." And so the guard was very unique looking. He, he looked like a young white guy, about five ten had brown hair, it was kind of long. Uh, he was a little pale, you know, than usual. And so he walks the guy over to the guard station, takes him to safety, and then the guard goes to trot away around the building, and he looked back at us and smiled, and then he just disappeared. Wow. You know, we was like, okay, you know, <laughs> what was that about? And so uh, we asked all the guards, we described, he was very distinctive looking, we described him, nobody had ever, the guard said, we don't have a guard here like, you know, this, that guy, he, nobody, I don't know if, even know if anybody else saw him, but our friend's life was saved, you know, at that particular point in time. So the, the, there was basically the four gangs in the prison when I was there in the 70s, it was uh, the BGF, the Black Guerrilla Family, that was the black gang, the Aryan Brotherhood, that was the white gang, and then there was the, the, the MA, and there was a Nuesta Familia, which was Northern California Mexicans, and then uh, the Mexican Mafia, yeah, which was the Southern California Mexicans. And so those were the gangs. So I remember that some guys that 
from the BGF came to me and, and they said, man, they're putting a contract. Because they thought I was crazy. They said, that's never happened before. A black guy saves a white guy in a race riot? You know, they were like, what is this guy? You know, he's lost his mind or something. And so they told me they put a contract out on me. But I remember I prayed. I remember I was praying the next day when they opened the yard up and I said, I said, Lord, whatever you want me to do, you know. One guy comes and he suggests I should PC, go into protective custody. And I said, whatever the Lord wants, I said, I'll do it, you know. So everybody's, everybody's on the yard but me. I'm, in the, I'm in, the, in the unit by myself, all my knees praying. And when I finished praying, I, 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 I step up and my Bible was open to a passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 22, I think it was. It says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he says, I'll make even your enemies be at peace with you. And so that was the answer that I, that I, I figured God saying walk the yard. So I did, you know, and I got confronted a couple of times, you know, by, um, uh, by, by the BGF leaders, you know, but I just said, you know what, I do it again. I do it for anybody, you know, it's what God called me to do. So God was good to me in that situation. He covered me doing my rest of my time in prison, and nobody ever ever harmed me or did anything to me. There's a couple things in that story that I want to point out that are really, really important. One is the guys that started the thing mm -hmm. ran inside and locked it up and didn't even have the balls to, like, stay out there and, mm -hmm. and, and finish the job. Two... Um, just the faithfulness of God. Yes. And that was amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing to me that it's his faithfulness, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Even with yeah. something that major. Amen. You know? Yeah. Amen. So I have a question. Sure. So when you were when you were into that and you had built you had built up yourself, you had built a reputation in, in that in that racial system. What were, I mean, how much of that that you came in contact with did you actually really come to believe? Or, and then how much of it was that, I don't really believe this, but I'm I'm, I'm doing what I have to do. Because I, I remember I read... 99%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll say it like this, because they would come at me and go, hey man, here's some books on Odin. And I'd be like... Pfft. I'd throw my Odin's I, a Norse god. Okay, so Odin's a Norse god that, that that most of these white supremacists worship, choose to worship mm -hmm. this Norse god, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, I wasn't even I'm, I'm way not saved, right? I'm I'm you know I'm all I'm still riding, mm -hmm. but phew, miss me with this. Like I, I I didn't want I didn't want anything spiritual. Get get mm -hmm. get get out of here with your with your propaganda. Mm -hmm. I just want to smash people. And play pinochle and lift weights, you know? So I th I'm thankful for that because I knew it was, it was like I knew. And as much as I fought against God, because I, I, I tell people like this, I was a God hater because I tried to be, but I acknowledged him the whole time. Do you understand that? Even when well, to hate him, you have to. Even when I was like, yeah, yeah no, miss me with that stupid religion. Like you guys are weak. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah, you know, like we left the true Christians on the yard, got left alone. But you better, you better be true blue, baby, because if you make one 
you make you you buy drugs once yeah. you're done because yeah. every time you never rode when you were supposed to ride mm-hmm. every time you played cards with that dude of the other race every time you played basketball every time you prayed with them you're paying for that now so I mean, it, you had to be one hundred percent. But if you're one hundred percent, yeah, he's right. Mm-hmm. Nobody messed with you. In fact, I believe you got a little bit of respect, you know, to you know, for what it's worth, you know. Um, that was because I I remember that very well. That the guys would say, and this this went for for blacks as well as anybody else. Amen. If you were gonna go to church, you know. You'd better not be faking, you know. And they knew if you were faking. You could not fool anybody. And if they found out you were faking it, you were going to get, you could lose your life. You're getting booked. Literally, yes. You're I mean, the you, you, You're done. They take, they just take your life. They just didn't play. I thought it was an interesting value system, you know, because I, I had guys tell me, listen, I'm not interested in Christianity at all. But there was a level of respect for it, it seemed as though there was some level of respect for it. Uh, so they left us alone, you know. May I just bring up the scripture yeah. that says that God puts it in every man. Yes. That he is real. Yeah. There it is right there. Yeah. I mean, bro, there's a whole, you know, there is a building full of people that are dead in their sins. Mm-hmm. Mostly, not everybody, but mostly. And yet, somehow they know enough. To give reverence mm-hmm. where reverence is due. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a trip. And that's real. Yeah. That's, I'm telling you, on every yard, everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's how it is. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, let's backtrack a second here and give us a little, how did you get to Christianity? Mm-hmm. You come from, and you've told me this before, mm-hmm. that you were a full-blown heroin addict. Mm-hmm. You were a, a, a panther. Mm-hmm. And um, you go to prison, and how did a, a faith issue start to take place in your life? What 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 happened? It actually started when I was in the Black Panther Party, and uh, so I was full blown into the Black Panther Party. This was, you know, I was full time. I was going full speed ahead, which is I did anything I did. I just did it, you know. I didn't hold anything back, and so I'm studying Marx and Lenin and. And I'm teaching some of this stuff, you know. And uh, I remember I was reading some material by Karl Marx. So I grew up in the church. That was one of the things. So my mother, very faithful Christian woman. Uh, our family, my grandmother, these were very powerful Christian women. So I knew the gospel. I had heard the gospel as a young man. So I was very aware of that. And so uh, I'm reading this material by Marx. And it came to a point where it said, where Marx said, uh, religion is the opiate of the people. And it said he was an atheist. And I thought, but Marx was my hero. <laughs> you know, Marx, uh, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, you know, all these guys were my heroes. And when I heard he was an atheist, it, it stunned me. Because I thought, how could somebody be so, so smart, could be dumb enough to believe that there is no God? And I don't know why, but it, it just, it's, it, ruminated in my head in a certain way that really bothered me a lot. And so I began to think about that. In the, the party at the time, I was in the L.A. chapter, there was a little bit of turmoil, some things going on within the party. And uh, I was becoming somewhat disenchanted 
with it, you know. There, there was some internal conflict between different groups and what was going on. Um, there was, then they did the big raid in L.A., which God's providence had me in a totally different place, you know, when that happened. But that situation seemed to bother me to the extent that eventually I, I just says I'm out, you know. And so I left. I left L.A. and I came back to Santa Ana. I'm an independent black militant revolutionary, still as militant as I ever was, you know, just without a, without a party or a group to be. I go to this event at, uh, at Jerome Center. We were talking about Jerome Center. And so all these politicians were there. The mayor was there, chief of police. And I'm just as arrogant and militant as ever. And I'm thinking, and it's election time, and I'm thinking, they only come down into our community when they want our votes, you know. So I'm telling people, man, I said, bump these white people. You know, they only want our votes, man. We're not doing this. And so they had a program. And, of course, when they called for the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, I'm the only guy in the room who stayed seated. You know, I just sat there and I crossed my arms and I was trying to get, don't be standing up for the Pledge of Allegiance, you know. I, I, I think Kaepernick learned something from me. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think I, I was the first one to do that. And so, but when that event was over, a guy approached me. You know, he came at me. He was looking for me. He said, hey. And I, I turned around. I see this guy come. I said, who's this old white man? What does he want with me? Well, he turned out to be Lauren Gazette. He was the mayor of the city of Santa Ana at the time. And he reached out to me. And he was glad to meet me. And I thought that was a little weird. I said, you have to know who I am. But Lauren was, was, was a wonderful Christian man. And so for the next nine years of my life, he befriended me and just spoke into my life. And we developed a, a, a pretty close relationship with him. Uh, he developed a great relationship with the community. And this, this goes to a racial thing. Um, he was, Lauren was a cons very conservative Republican. I remember going in his office and seeing a picture of Richard Nixon. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, this guy, do I want to hang out with this guy or what? But Lauren was a real Christian, you know, just loved the Lord, faithful. And he just came into the community and began to build relationships, you know. I know we'll talk about this, proximity, living in proximity to people. He built such wonderful relationships in the community. People began, they liked Lauren, and Lauren was a real person. So when Lauren runs for re-election, all the black people vote for the Republican. But they weren't voting for him because he was a Republican. They were voting for him because he was Lauren Gazette, you know, and he had built relationships, you know, doing life with people. So I, that, so that was powerful. Give us a little bit of your background mm -hmm. on uh, your intro. How'd you get into the drug world? What was going on in your your personal being at the time? Was that part of being in the the party was that a way to support things? What was going on? I had kind of I had kind of walked out of the party. Okay. You know, after a period of time, it, it kind of faded. You know, I think you remember some people haven't heard the fact that you know there was a police officer killed in Santa Ana in in uh, June July of 1969. I was arrested and charged with that murder. I spent uh, some time in jail behind that, and until eventually they realized that. I wasn't the one that I was released. I went to LA, came back to Orange County, and uh, got custody of my two kids at the time. And so I now had responsibilities. And so I ended up uh, going, I was going to school, studying psychology, and I worked for the County of Orange for a period of time. And just through 
you know, I I liked to party. P- party was my thing. You know, if, if they had a offered a PhD in party, I would have went and got it. You know, <laughs> so yeah, and um, um, and so eventually, you know, me and a friend of mine, we uh, started dealing drugs. You know, just casually that kind of thing. And through the course of that, I began to use the drugs I was dealing. And we dealt cocaine when it was very popular in the early '70s. And so, uh, and so I started mixing it with heroin, you know, back and forth, speedballing and those kind of things. And then eventually, uh, I found myself strung out on heroin. And so it was just kind of downhill from there. And, uh, uh, and eventually I had a major addiction. I was just doing $200 a day minimum, you know, uh, just to stay well. I hardly wasn't even getting high anymore. And, uh, and, of course, I was stealing and robbing and burglarizing like crazy. Eventually, I get arrested, you know, and then I get sentenced. They sent me to six years in, in state prison behind that. Okay. So, yeah. And you found the Lord in uh, prison? When I went to prison, uh, 19, I was arrested in 1978, and I went to Chino. By this time, I was pretty, I was pretty broken, you know, and, and I was scared because I thought, okay, I'm going to get off of it. I'm going to kick the drugs. I kicked him in the county jail. And then I thought I'm going to do six years in prison, but I still had that burning desire for the drugs, you know. And so when I ended up, uh, by the time I got to Chino, uh, I was ready. I was pretty broken. So I went to a chapel service there and um, surrendered my life to Christ wow. at that point in time. And that was and that's when everything started to change. That's when life started. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I want to jump in a little bit with my story because I grew up in Santa Ana also, only about a mile from where Daniel grew up. Yes. And uh, even though he's nine years older, I experienced a lot of racial tensions in the 60s. And I remember in grade school, they would let us out. I went to a parochial school and they would let us out early so we wouldn't have to cross paths with the people, the kids coming uh, home from Santa Ana Valley High School Mm -hmm. because it was, uh, there was a predominance of black people there. And of course, in a Catholic school, there was maybe a a handful. Mm -hmm. And so there was this tension that would take place. So I experienced a lot of racial conflict growing up there. And I actually grew up till I was 16 uh, on the border between the white area of Santa Ana and the black area of Santa Ana. And I was on the dividing line, which was McFadden Avenue at that point in time. And everything uh, north of McFadden was pretty much black. I couldn't even walk in that neighborhood. And, uh, and everything south was white. And, and uh, so there was this dynamic and the park near our house was controlled by the blacks at the area, Jerome Park and, and Daniel. Daniel knows about these areas <laughs> yeah. and uh, they wouldn't let me in. I got beat up going there and it was the community pool. And then when I was a little older, uh, I was, uh, we'd go to Memorial Park, mm-hmm. which was another park with a public school. And that was taken over by the Hispanics and uh, the gang over there. And so uh, we weren't allowed to go there. And so there was this dynamic of playing sports with different colored uh, people. We call them colored back in the day and uh, of, of different colors. And then there was the out the way you dealt life. You didn't hang out at all. 
And I remember my sister played on a softball team from the area of Santa Ana with all, all blacks and they and they wanted to name the team the nine cats and the honky and <laughs> and the coach wouldn't let them do that and uh, but when they would go play at different places they stood out like a sore thumb because a lot of Santa Ana was white and a lot of the you know when you would travel to play different areas in softball there would be issues and it was like so I grew up in the um environment of this kind of stuff going on all the time. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, some black friends and I had some, uh, most of my friends were white, obviously, but we would play ball together. But there was, there was always a tension um, uh, in the environment. And so I'm super happy that we're having this time together and, and uh, we're going to address some of these issues. So I know a little bit because I know like, a lot of the guys that was in white supremacy, you know, there wasn't just black people that they hated, but they hated the Jews and so on and so forth. Everybody. Yeah, and they followed the, the, the not the Nazi lowriders, you know, they were like in with Hitler and those beliefs and some of the beliefs of superiority and that blacks were inferior, you know. So I'm kind of interested in, in how that belief system, because uh, you said, you know, you just wanted to smash people. <laughs> you know, it yeah. didn't really matter how that belief system affected you. You know, I mean, were you like, yeah, I, I believe this stuff, you know, and that's why that's driving me to smash people. I want to say that I tried to believe it. You know what I mean? Like, 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 I mean, I think anybody like, like you, once you started getting into, you know, the communism and stuff like that, yeah. you know, it's like, I tried to, you know, buy into all of it i think i see that um and i i i would say that i did for a while it's just because i you know my actions would tell you that and my words would tell you that you know i remember i remember i'm i'm not proud of this at all but i'm gonna share it I got out of prison and I paroled to Long Beach. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in a bar and there was this black bouncer. And I remember I was all drunk one night and I, I spoke to him mm -hmm. and I was and he, I, he, he was engaged with me. He didn't, we didn't fight, but he voiced his opinions about me and I voiced my opinions about him and he had his, you know, names for me and I had my names for him. And you know, I said the N word mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. So I... You know, I was enough, my belief system was enough to where I would have a conversation with the gentleman about it and mm -hmm. call him the N-word. But I, you know what I mean? I, I didn't um, buy into, like, I didn't support the KKK. Like, I wasn't throwing money at some organization mm -hmm. for white supremacy. Like, I feel like those guys are like, 
way more all in with the political side of how how can we really build the white race like i wasn't i just wanted to smash people and play pinochle and lift weights you know (laughs) and maybe i just wanted to survive brother honestly maybe that's just what i wanted to do was survive yeah, I'm kind of thinking that because I remember I've talked to guys. I talked to a guy that I was in prison with that I run into him <clears throat> outside of prison. And he said, hey, man, he said I was doing what I had to do. You know, he says, he said, I didn't really believe all of that. He says, I mean, I would say things. He said my behavior was, he said, I'd throw the N-word and I'd be like, you know, he said, I did all of that. He says, but he said, it's, it's survival. And he said, a lot of the guys are like that. You know, they're there. And so this is what I got to do, you know, to get along. So they would do that. Not really, you know, this is kind of like with communism. I wanted to believe in that system. I, I really wanted to believe that it was the best system. But re- reality told me this is not going to work here. And your true self finally came to grips with the belief system and said, yeah. This isn't working. Like, you don't really yeah. believe this. You do what you got to do, yeah. but you don't really believe it. Yeah. So that's, yeah. And amen. I think there's a component from here, and both of you guys share, of being victims. You know, white power, a lot of that mm-hmm. is we've been victimized. We are mm-hmm. down. And when you go to prison, mm-hmm. you're either a victim or a predator. Mm-hmm. And so you join the predators. Mm-hmm. And in your regular life, from what I'm hearing, you were victimized, you, you know, there just for the mere fact of your color. So there's this thing of, okay, I am going to lift up and we're not going to be, we're going to fight and we're going to get our, you know, get our share. However, we looked at that. So that takes us then to the present Mm -hmm. of how does that work now that you guys are both uh, in the family of God. Mm-hmm. So now we're family. Mm-hmm. How does that work in family? Because even in church, you can find a lot of segregation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in fact, it's the, there used to be the comment that church is the most segregated place there is on yeah. Sunday. Martin Luther King, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you got the blacks going to the black church, Hispanics mm-hmm. going to the Hispanic church, the Asians right. going to the Asian mm-hmm. church, the whites going to the white church. Right. And breaking down those barriers, mm-hmm. um, is uh, a challenge Mm -hmm. because without being overtly prejudiced, we all click with certain group, you know, we tend to click with certain groups of people. And so we navigate through that. And I think what you said earlier Mm -hmm. about proximity um, creates uh, connection, Mm -hmm. creates empathy, creates understanding, just watching both of you guys and listening to you guys today Mm -hmm. and how you guys, uh, different races, Mm -hmm. but so much similarity in your upbringing and in the the prison environment and in the drug world. And, you know, and I think people generally have all the same needs. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to have purpose want to have family we want to have a reason for being here and when that gets smashed in different ways Mm -hmm. we revolt against that and it's easy then to pick out Mm -hmm. you know whether someone's a you know wearing a suit and tie they're the enemy whoever we perceive to have power Mm -hmm. greater power than us becomes an enemy Mm -hmm. then we get into faith and we realize whoa there's a god 
and how does this work? And I think that is uh, 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 an issue in a, in the church. But it you look around society, it's a massive issue. Yes, you know, it's absolutely. it's a massive issue, and we're always looking for someone to pin the tail on mm -hmm. of why this is the problem in my life. Mm -hmm. So, how does that work in the sense of individual responsibility mm -hmm. and uh, uh, the culture we grow up in and the problems that we still have interracially. And I think you hit it on the head. And if you could expound a little bit more on that. You know what I was proximity. just, what I was just thinking is that, you know, in Chris's eyes relationship, like, you know, we just came together and we started relating and everything. We've never had a conversation about race. Never. Never had a conversation about race. We've never said, hey, let's talk about, you know, the past and everything like that. And so we've never had that, you know, so I think that goes to the fact that, you know, because we're both in Christ and we know in Christ, we're all one in Christ. And so we automatically transcended, you know, any differences we had based on, on what we had in common, which is salvation in Christ. And our relationship just built on that foundation. And we never, now there have been, you know, a couple of guys that wanted to talk about it and, you know, we'll sit and talk about it. But, you know, so I think doing racial reconciliation is, is about proximity, first and foremost. People doing life with other people, sitting down, talking to each other, uh, listening to each other, trying to empathize. Mm. And let me, let me look through your eyes and see your perspective and see if I can feel what you're, if I can get an idea of why you feel the way that you do or why you believe the way that you do. Testimony always mm. creates empathy. Yes. Creates understanding. Yeah. That's a, yeah, absolutely. So I think that, yeah, so, you know, I mean, I've, I haven't really thought about it. We just connected and that was it. So we've never, I don't think you have to have, sit down and talk about racial issues, you know. I think if you're doing proximity with other people, it's a, there's a natural reconciliation, you know. I think that's, that's how you would do any kind of racial reconciliation is through proximity first and foremost. Well, and I think that especially, because we're talking about the church now, right? Yeah. Um, especially in church, um, it should be so much about the Spirit of God and us being one in Him that, I mean, why should we have a conversation about race? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It does. It's not significant. Um, and if there, you know, I think that, and I think we all know this, that, that generally human beings are tribal people. We just are. We, we, we tend to, you know, we want to hang out with our tribe. We want to hang out where it feels good. We, we want to, you know, go where we, we can we relate, you know, people, you know, can relate to us and, and so generally we do that as a society, we do that as a church, we do that as human beings because mm -hmm. human beings are little worshipers. That's why we're called sheep. The, the world called human sheep mm -hmm. and the church, and Jesus called human sheep, his, his sheep. Why? Because we're all susceptible. The most intelligent man on this planet is susceptible to manipulation, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? By someone or something that 
can get to them, you know, and we, we take it in. And, and, and so where I think the church needs to direct its focus is not so much on uh, per se what's going on in the world because if you're looking at your phone and your TV for information, you are going to have, you're going to have to wrestle with racism. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to wrestle with your brother or sister voting a different way and having to, do you still love them? Mm -hmm. They're totally liberal. They have eight kinds of hair and they don't know what gender they are. Do you love them? Can you love them? You're called to love them. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? The, the, we're getting into some, you know, <laughs> race is, you know, how do I say this? Like, we're getting to deep, deep waters now where it's not just about race. Now it's about race and gender. Now it's, I mean, we're getting into some really, um, mixed up waters where people are demanding you take a side and and you you need to have this stance on this or you're a hater Mm -hmm. and it's like "Mm, that's why church we go to the word the truth we must be grounded somewhere or we will fall Mm -hmm. for every single division divisive idea theory you know that comes our way because we as humans are naturally going to be drawn to take a side if we're not implanted in the word of God. Yes. If I have the word and I'm saturated in word, I look at my brother and he can, you know, I remember, um, what was it? Um, it, it you went and spoke at it. It was like uh, Juneteenth or something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one was two or three years ago. It's a ago. black holiday, yeah, right? It, yeah, it was, it was right after George Floyd. So you went and, and you spoke at that Juneteenth thing. And like, I, I love you and I respect you for doing that. Because you went out and you, 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 you voiced your, your opinion for your, pe- your people, I guess, right? Well, so me... I'm, I'm sitting over here and we're going to be honest right now. I'm sitting over here and I, I totally own the fact that I had some really messed up beliefs about people of color, but, but I'm over here now. I'm not racist. I am. I I've never owned a slave. I've never, you know, done anything like that. And, and I feel this weight coming from somewhere mm-hmm. that I'm bad. I mean, there's a, there's this, there's this looming weight over me being a straight white Christian man, male, yeah. male mm-hmm. that I have to carry now. And I'm not crying. I'm not crying over this. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, you know what, if, if, if I need to carry this because my forefathers screwed up, so be it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not even saying I'm carrying anything because I'm in Christ. Remember, I'm just saying as a, as a straight white, there's this looming thing that, that I'm this bad guy. So these, you know, black lives matter, you know, and, and these movements that are happening that, um, seem to be, um, still about division. It's like, so now we're shifting into this. 
it wasn't okay back then. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be okay now, guys. So let's not, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, cause now I'm a victim. Now it's all on me. <laughs> I'm just saying, God, it, guys, it wasn't right then. Mm -hmm. Let's not switch it over to here. Now let's, let's get into the word of God. Let's come together. Let's. Well, I think what you're saying in part is that you haven't done nothing. And yet I'm feeling like somehow there's this whole group of people against me and I didn't really do anything to them. And, uh, does that make sense? I think, you know what it does. And I, I think that's, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because what, what I think happening, if I can kind of capsulize this, you know, and give an overview is that, you know, so I kind of, when I'm looking at the racial issue today, I'm, I have to I have to start way back in the 1600. I, I have to you have to look at history and the truth of the history, you know, and so um, you know it goes all the way back to the 1600. You know they talk about 1619 bringing the first slaves here. So around the the late the mid to late 1600s is when they, in earnest, began to develop a system of white racist supremacy, and so. They built that, they had to build a system like that in order to enslave black people, you know, because they had to be inferior. So that system has permeated this country for decades, you know, for centuries. That's been the, that's been the narrative in the conversation for all these years. I think where we're at now is that, I heard somebody put it like this here. Tony Evans put it like this here. He said, <clears throat> he said, what's happening now is akin to the chickens coming home to roost, you know, whereas, you know, white people have been the dominant people group for all these years. They've been the majority. They've been the dominant people group. They've been in power. That power dynamic is starting to shift, you know. Black people now over the, what, the last 10, 15 years, black people now have a voice. It's like now they have the megaphone. You know, it's like, I heard somebody say, well, now the ducks have the guns, you know, <laughs> something like that, you know. And so, yes, so now the black people are saying, we now have some power. We now, we now, our voice is loud enough. We can make some noise. It's payback time. You know, I, I think that's kind of where, I, you know, this is, this is like, this is how you treat us. We're going to give you some of this, some of our medicine. And so I also Which I can understand. Yes. I understand it on a human level. Yeah. I just don't think it's the well, best choice. Well, it me. isn't the best choice. <laughs> so I, what, I, what, what I see is this, is that, yes, yeah, so they, uh, so that's where I think people are coming from. And I think so for the first time in the history of this country, white people are being challenged just for being white. I think if you look at the whole history, you know, They've had the guns, you know, they've been in power. They've controlled the narrative, you know, they did the stereotyping and everything. Now that's sort of the shoes on the other foot. Now the other side is 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 now challenging white people for being white. And so from an empathetic standpoint of view, I have to look at my white brother and I say, how would I feel? Well, I know how I would feel because I, I went through being... You have felt it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've been through it. So one of the questions I ask myself is that, man, that should sure be great if, if white people would say, so this is how it feels, you know? Man, let, let me connect with you. You know, how did you deal with this for 300 years? Help me to deal with this. Within the church, with Christians, I think, there could be that empathy. So I understand the defensive posture that the white people have come up with. 
you know. So I have to think, if I was white, what kind of narratives would I come up with to push back against the current conversation? I would say things like, I never owned a slave, you know, 150 years ago, get over it, you know, those kind of narratives. And so I think because white people are losing their dominant position, we know that the country, you know, ethnically speaking, is going to be a minority white at a certain point in time. So that's shifting. So I'm thinking if I was white, I'd be a little nervous, you know, because I wouldn't want, I'm thinking, are they going to try to get revenge? Are they going to try to do something to us, you know, in return? And so the, the narrative coming from that side is pushing the narrative of white privilege, white supremacy. And if you're white, I've heard them say that your, your whites are like genetically racist. It's like you're born with that. You'll always be a racist. And so I'm thinking from my position that if I was white, how would I react to that and handle that? So I can empathize in a sense. And I would probably ask the same, well, I have asked the same questions, you know, type of thing. So I, that's what I think kind of the dynamics are today is kind of what's happening. And so I think from a Christian perspective, we as believers, you know, in, in taking a more gospel position is to empathize. I think I should look at my white brothers and sisters and say, I understand what you're going through. You know, how can I embrace you? You know, how, you know, how, how can I, how can we communicate and talk about this and develop an understanding but and have those conversations? We should be doing that. Yeah. Already, and if if it's not happening in church, I, then I you know I, I I don't even know what we should be having. And okay, like we're you know I'm not friends with everybody at our church, but me and you are friends. Amen. And so we have deep conversations mm -hmm. about stuff we deeply care about. Yes. And and so. Do you see how you, you said race has never come up? It, it because it's it, that part's not important. I I hundred percent agree with the fact that we all need to heal as a nation. Hundred yes. percent. I mean, an empathy mm -hmm. is the is the banner we should raise. Yeah. It should be America's new. Mm -hmm you know, vow is that we're just empathetic to each other. Forgiveness. Yes. Forgiveness and empathy mm -hmm. is, is what I, I believe many, even in the church, are lacking. I guess, unfortunately, it's like, you know, the, the right wing, the, the, the mm -hmm. super conservatives, and, and they're Christians, but they're angry. Not all of them. I don't want to put anybody in a box. Mm -hmm. But it seems like in our temperature of... yeah. That even, you know, these people that are, you know, they're, they're patriots and they're Christians and they love Jesus. Well, then why are you so angry? Mm -hmm. Why are we so angry at each other? Because look what they're doing to our country. Is God not in control? Mm -hmm. Would God not ordain a famine if there is one? Well, I think uh, part of it is our natural human uh, response to feeling attacked yes. is defensive and then offensive. And so, you know, instead of sitting down, like you just said, and, and saying, tell me your story. Yeah. You know, we don't tell stories. Mm -hmm. We, we blanket people in groups 
And as group think and group think, oh, you're, you're this, oh, yeah. That's the enemy. And I'm not even willing to hear you. No, I'm not even That's willing to breakdown. hear you. That's the breakdown. I don't even think it's important to hear you. Yes. I don't even think it's important. Exactly, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, how often do we get together because we don't think it's important? It's not a big deal to my life. Right. And yet I hear these things and now that's a big deal. But it's like, you know... If we understand, I mean, that's one of the beauties of I want to have mm -hmm. from a church perspective, an interracial, um, everybody coming together. Mm -hmm. But there are differences and you have to explore that those with are someone. beautiful. Well, the differences absolutely. are what make us beautiful. Yeah. That's what makes us. Yes. Yeah. Because if we were the same, it would suck. Yeah. We'd all be the same. So we can celebrate our diversity. You know, it's, it's, it's. You gotta celebrate Italians for pasta. <laughs> Where would the world be? Thank you. Without pizza. Thank you for ravioli. <laughs> but yeah, there is that dynamic. And uh, culturally speaking, also, mm -hmm. you know, so it, it, these have these things and uh, proximity, mm -hmm. communication, embracing. And that's the great challenge that I think. Um, as we move forward as, as a people, it's our only hope. One of the key things is being willing to listen to other people. You have to listen and hear them, you know, yeah. and not but listen and to not understand, be, not be defensive. I want to understand why you're feeling that way. And yeah. so and then you ask questions and yeah. then you draw those things. Rather out. than listening to see if you think like I do. Right, right. I'm, and this is what I want to challenge everybody mm -hmm. is listen to understand. From now on, your spouse at work, when you come across conflict, try listening mm -hmm. to understand. Understand why they think the way they think. What do they really mean by that? And if you have to ask questions, ask questions. Mm -hmm. I can respond in a healthy way mm -hmm. in love. Let me give you a church example of that. People have come up to me in, in church, you know, people aren't really friendly. Mm -hmm. People aren't friendly here. You know, we don't get that much. But whenever they've done that, I, I've always asked them, have you asked anybody out to lunch? Mm -hmm. What have you invested in being a friend mm -hmm. to somebody? What have you invested in that? Mm -hmm. Because that creates proximity. And then you go to lunch with someone, you break and bread with someone. It, yeah. There's a form of intimacy just in that. Over just over yes. food. Yes. And it's like, well, what have you done to step out of that. Mm -hmm. You know, all these, you so many tattooed people at your church. It's like. They go get a tattoo. Go get a tattoo. Go go ask them about their tattoos. Have you ever asked them about their tattoos? Yeah. Hey, what's that tattoo mean? Mm -hmm. Why, you know, tell me a little bit about your story. Right. Right. Tell me your story. Mm -hmm. uh, my first uh, uh, usual entry point into counseling mm -hmm. someone is to hear their story. Tell me mm -hmm. your story. You know, why are we meeting? Oh, okay, you want to talk about this? Yeah, why don't we back up and, and tell me your story? Because yeah. when, when you tell me your story, it gives me insight into your life. Mm -hmm. I'm actually seeing life mm -hmm. from how you see it. Yes. 
So I want to see that rather than just talk about this one issue over here that you came in for, because that whole issue has got massive backstory and backstory fills in a lot of dots. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not willing to invest in it, then I shouldn't be willing to speak about it Mm -hmm. because I'm speaking from a place of ignorance. Amen. Or even allow yourself to be all in on one kind of theory. If you, if you don't know, like I'm not all the way in on this. Because I'm not, I don't have all the information. Like yeah. it seems right. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to give it that much, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to commit. Mm-hmm. That's why I tell people not even to commit to a man. Mm-hmm. Jesus never committed to one person's theology, guys. Mm-hmm. So don't be all in with one preacher. You know, he, we honor the man of God. We, you know, we, we appreciate that he comes to the pulpit with the truth and he does a good job, mm-hmm. but... He's a sinner like me. He's flawed. He's and flawed. we're all flawed. Amen. And, th- and that gives us great commonality. Mm-hmm. I don't see, how could I possibly see what it was like growing up as a black guy mm-hmm. in Santa Ana? Mm-hmm. I do have the honor and privilege of growing up in a place where there was a melting pot and I did feel prejudiced against yes. simply for my color and I get it. But it it is, it's, I don't have to feel that every day, everywhere I go. Right. What would that feel like? Yeah. I don't have to feel that. Like I got to be better at, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in an interview than everybody else to get even have the hope of getting the job. You know, I don't have to battle with that right. to a degree that some do. I, I do in the sense of someone more highly educated or something mm-hmm. like that in a job, but that's, mm-hmm. that's on merit. If I walk in and I'm already under the table in the sense of oh, I got the color yeah. that ain't right, you know. Um, yeah. So, I, you you know, I was thinking when you said that, that's 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 a good point, because you have a certain perspective that allows you to uh, uh, understand, you know, something that a lot of white people don't have that perspective at all. And so they're not going to be able to to understand what that's like. But right. you got the perspective, which I, gives you... I, I think it's beautifully ironic, actually. You were in the same neighborhood, yeah. the same time, and yeah. you were being racially you have a profiled. Have a different experience. Opposite. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. wow. Mm-hmm. But see, if you grow up in, let's just use your Belinda, since we yeah. used it earlier, mm-hmm. that's a whole different... That's Oh, I, I don't, I'm not trying to minimize, like, no. oh, poor Joe, like, no, you know. Yeah. No, no, I but like, I was just saying, that person doesn't have that same experience. Yeah. They don't have that because they didn't grow up in it. And that's where culture plays a role. If I only know these people from a great distance, Mm -hmm. never have hung out with them, don't know anything about them. Mm -hmm. It's been not my experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm only being told stories, Mm -hmm. whether they're minimal or whether they're, you know, these people are wrong. These are people are bad. They're different. Then, you know, I am going to, that affects the way I look at things. And that's why scripture talks about gossip and slander. Mm -hmm. It always paints a person in a negative light. And I don't even have to know that person. And I am already skewed looking at them, Mm -hmm. that there's something different about them Mm -hmm. that isn't good. Yeah. I don't even have to be able to put my finger on it. What is the not good part about it? Oh, I just group them together. You know, and I think like to your point, um, us, generally speaking, white people mm-hmm. are feeling that finger 
for simply being the color I am. For being white, yeah. And in going back, all my grandparents were immigrants. Mm -hmm. They weren't even in America during this, all the things that took place. They didn't grow up here. They didn't live here. They immigrated in. So it's like, I'm not even a part of any of that in historically, mm -hmm. but I do get that the color of my skin yes. puts me in that group. And so it's unfair. Mm -hmm. Now I'm feeling the unfairness mm -hmm. that, oh, some people have felt since they were teensy weensy. You make that connection. So yeah. yeah. Can, can, I, can we point out something though that's really significant? is do you see humanity just spinning around in a circle in different ways? And it just solidifies that our only hope is the word of God, you guys. Well, our only hope is God. Period. Well, that's what I'm saying. His word is all we have it's here. It's the unifying factor. I, too, will get wrapped up in the minutia if I want to. You see what I'm saying? I can feed myself the truth. It will keep me grounded. The truth keeps me grounded. The truth keeps me rightly sized. Well, you take God out of the picture mm -hmm. and we have to fix each other. Yeah. We're, We're doomed. doomed. I need to, you know, I need to level this field however mm -hmm. I feel like it needs to be leveled. Yeah. And then, so, and then that's going to create problems on the other side because they're going to feel this, you know, now we're just fighting in a- We're just warring back against each other. One maybe getting higher than the other for, for a few hundred years or whatever, which, you know, and may happen. And that's know? what's changed us in every way is the unifying power of God. Yes. And recognizing whether you're painted, we're all painted. Mm -hmm. You're painted. Mm -hmm. I'm painted. Mm -hmm. These guys have extra paint on them, and they, you know, they. This is, it's, it's a, it's a non-deal. It doesn't yeah. even matter. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't even matter because your heart, the things you want, the things you want, the things mm -hmm. I want, are universal, yeah. and yeah. and we're all fallen universally yes. we're all messed up yeah. and we also have great value universally yeah. everybody counts yeah. from the baby in the womb counts mm -hmm. and that's what changes that baby counts too yes you know and mm -hmm. we all count yes. and you know so that's what begins that's where we now, invest our time we, how do we walk that out in 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 our environment mm -hmm. being church people because our churches all generally speaking are still very uh, segregated yeah, in, in the way so. they operate and the way they function. They love God, yeah. but it's very tribal. Yeah. And, and, and breaking out of that is the challenge. And I'm not even sure if I have the answers and how to do it, except mm -hmm. to embrace people in of different, of different races. Yeah. Like, I love that you're with us. Yeah. I love that people, other people of different, um, ethnic origins right. are right. with us yeah. because it makes us better. Right. I'm grateful for guys like you that come mm -hmm. from a place that I never was, mm -hmm. you know, and, and yet I relate to you as one of you two are two of my dearest friends yes. and it doesn't, brothers. it doesn't matter. Brothers. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. We're even more than that. Like you said, we're yeah. family. Yeah. So it's not an issue mm -hmm. how, you know, and I guess it just starts where, every individual is at because I can't fix everybody, but I can fix what I can yeah. and be a blessing. You know what I, I think? I think we have to take the conversation out of the realm of a particular skin color, you know, and you start at, at the very, at the core that we're all sinners, 
You, you know, we're, we're all the same at the foot of the cross. You know, we're, we're all born with a sin nature. And so anybody, you know, regardless of your skin color, can be a racist. You know, regardless if if racism and there are racists racism, in every race. If racism, there are racists. If racism is a sin, then yeah. anybody and everybody can, can Amen. be. Amen. There is so, a one yeah. falling, you know, falling yeah. short that one group has over the other. Exactly. It's like, oh, yeah. and, and I think we were talking about the issue of white privilege. You yeah. know, I think the issue of white privilege has it's it's used to say, well, if you got white privilege, then you're a racist. I, I think biblically speaking. Uh, if, if there's such a thing as privilege, then anybody can have privilege. I don't think it's so much if you have it. I think it's more what do you do with it, right. you know? And it uh, makes me think of, uh, uh, what is it, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So I was having a conversation with a guy online, and he was pushing back on the issue of white privilege. And I said, listen, I says, there's financial privilege, there's social privilege, you know, there's economic privilege. There's all kind of privileges, and it, it, it expands in, in all different areas of society. Rich people have more privilege than poor people and, and so on and so forth. I said, so if we take it out of that little single box of just being white, I think we can see that anybody ever. So I use this example of white privilege is in back in slavery days when the, the uh, Underground Railroad was functioning, if there weren't white people part of the Underground Railroad, the Underground Railroad was doomed from the beginning because you had to have people who had access to resources that could go places that black people couldn't. So there were some white people, abolitionists, who were the abolitionists. They, because they were white, they could access things and people and places and things that nobody else could. Was that a privilege in that in that culture in that society? Absolutely, Absolutely it was a privilege. You know, they, they were entitled to things that black people weren't. So they used their entitlement or their privilege for good. You know, into helping out. You know, to bring bring some freedom to slaves. So so I think when you look at it like that, you know, and just like I think I've used the example, like I'm I'm black. You go with me into a black community. You know, because you're with me, you know, then you're okay. You're not gonna say, hey, right. no, this white boy's all right. Right. You know what I'm absolutely. saying? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You go in there by yourself, you're gonna run into black privilege. Right. You know, you go into any other uh, ethnic environment, and those people are gonna have uh, a tight yeah. Hispanic privilege. You know, yeah. you're gonna run into it no matter where it is. So I think if we take privilege, so what I tell some of my white friends is that, hey, listen, if you got it, don't stop trying to be defensive about it. Just say, because you know, if God is sovereign, He decided what skin you were going to be on you, what, who your parents were going to be, what community you were going to be born in, what your parents' economic situation, the values in that community. God is sovereign over all of that. And so, if He, if you were born in a position where you have certain privileges, be generous. Then your privilege, be generous. Your privilege is a gift from God. Amen. And when, and when, and be aware that I can use my privilege for good. Then use it. I used to have, uh, growing up in the community, there would be white people that would come in. Usually, they were liberals, you know, progressives. And uh, I was looking for a job, and the guy says, "You know what, Daniel? Let let me go ahead of you." Because if you go in there, they're not going to hire you because you're black. I'm white. I know people in there. He used his privilege to go in and pay the way for me to get a job. 
Absolutely. You know, that's using your privilege yeah. for good, you know. Yeah. And for Christians, you're using it to the glory of God. Right. So I just say that, you know, it's a gift. Whatever God's given you is a gift. And so Absolutely. you need to see it as that. You need to be willing to use I mean, it. If we that. take it even down to the well, nuclear said, family, yeah, you know, we have certain privileges. If I have healthy parents, mm-hmm. if my parents stayed together and were loving, mm-hmm. I have a privilege over a divorced family that the family is in absolute chaos. Right. There's a privilege to that, but I, there's also a responsibility because mm-hmm. from privilege, from what I hear you saying, and I absolutely agree, there's responsibility to that. Yes. yes. I now have a responsibility to be a blessing with what I have, yeah. you know. Um, great responsibility. Great responsibility. You know, if God gives you something, you're not supposed to hoard it and keep it. You're supposed right. to give it away. Absolutely. You know, to bless other people with yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, and, and, and that's universal. Yes. As Americans, we have far greater privilege than huge parts of yes. the world. Yes. Just for the mere fact we're born here. Mm-hmm. Our poverty people here are still wealthier than half the half world. Oh, yeah. And and so you know there is, I was just t- sharing this with uh, our one of the grandkids is that if you're here, you you don't starve to death. Mm-hmm. You you know there is food available even for our homeless, for, even yes. for the homeless, mm-hmm. even for there's food banks everywhere. Yeah. We have a large one in our church, mm-hmm. and and that you know that is not the norm mm-hmm. in the world. Right. And, and even in here, we get money from the government, even though it could be little if you're in poverty, mm-hmm. but there's still some resources here. Yes. Much of the world does not have that. Right. Right. So the mere fact we're Americans, that is a privilege and a responsibility to yes. be a blessing. Yes. Whatever God blesses us with, in the, if you want to look at that as privilege, mm-hmm. we get to bless. And also it can translate into the hard parts of our life. When we've been wounded, and God comes in, like in you, both what you guys are sharing and in my world too, is when we start to get healed, we have a responsibility to be wounded healers. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't keep our, our, our health to ourselves and our spirituality yeah. and yeah. to ourselves. We keep that out there because that's a solution. That helps people. Amen. Yeah. And so... Um, and maybe that's the Second Corinthians 1, 7. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. With how we've been comforted, we comfort. We comfort others. You know, if I've been privileged to be comforted, yes, I have an obligation, and that's what God uh, does with us. Yeah, you know, and that's why I believe one of the reasons He allows us to also suffer mm-hmm. is so we have commonality. And oh, that's what it feels to like. minister to other people to who minister are suffering. to others because yeah. we know it's a privilege. So it's a privilege. God's giving you a, a privilege. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's some suffering. Use it. <laughs> For the good. Amen. You know? Yeah, here's some, some trials. Yeah, I mean, and you'll find out that it was good later when yeah. you come and you're in, you know, yeah. with me. Yeah. We'll look back yeah. and I'll show you that it's good. And yeah. You understand. It's like, oh, yeah. And that's what, what did Jesus say? As I have loved you, love others. Yeah, you know, go and do likewise. Yeah. You know, and so. So I would say, you know, if somebody comes up and says, oh, you're a white dude, you got privilege. You can praise God. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> How can I, I bless it? you? Yeah. <laughs> I love you. That's that's a beautiful way to bring truth to that concept with solution rather than, you know, I'm going to pay you for my pain. I'm going to pay back. That's where forgiveness comes in. You know, I've been in pain, so everybody around me gets to be in pain. 
Forgiveness yeah. is, is huge, I think, because I know in South Africa, when that situation, when, when they got rid of apartheid over there, well, I think there is five million black people and what, a quarter million white people in South Africa. I mean, they were the minority. They just happened to have the guns and the power. So when that, so they were, uh, uh, they were concerned about a bloodbath, a racial bloodbath. You know, you got five million black people that all of a sudden got this power they didn't have before. And they were treated absolutely, apartheid was brutal. I mean, it was brutal, just like slavery and Jim Crow was brutal here. And so it was Mandela and Desmond Tutu that pushed the concept of forgiveness. And they developed a, a truth and reconciliation uh, uh, commission. So I, I think there's been over 40 nations that did that when they had internal things. So one of the questions I say was that America's never done that. They've never actually sat down, let's, let's do a truth and reconciliation commission. And let's just face these things head on. Let's face the history as brutal as it is. And so another thing that's empathy for me is I know that for a lot of white people, having that conversation historically is difficult. You know, because when you look into history, you see white people were the victimizers, black people were the victims. And so you see these pictures of lynchings and you see white people standing around, black people. You know, if, if I think if I was white and I was looking at that, that would that would stir up feelings of shame and guilt in me, Amen. even though I didn't even do it. I wasn't yeah. there, yeah, but I, I'm identifying. These people look like me, yeah. you know, sort of like they're my people. I want to be in denial of that. I don't want to have that conversation. I want to move on. But I think to get to healing, you have to have the conversation, truth and reconciliation, and as difficult as it is. So I think on black people's part is we should make that path as comfortable as we possibly can with our white brothers and sisters you know we should be willing to be very empathetic sympathetic and and say brother i love you it's okay we can have this conversation we can we can lament together and so now they say oh my white brothers they got to look at this and they got to they got to identify with this that's painful for them so i think we have to identify we have to be willing to embrace and say hey brother it's it's okay i love you I think sometimes the hard part is um, for for whites mm -hmm. is that uh, the the same thing is that wasn't me. Yes, that wasn't me mm -hmm. who did that. Yes, um, yes, it was the people that are the same color, mm -hmm. and I can empathize about that. Mm -hmm. I can empathize that these people had great power. These people did things. They whatever their reasoning was. But to put it on me mm -hmm. is is uh, oftentimes a hard pill to swallow. Sure, because I I did not mm -hmm. participate in it. Right, and so to be sorry for something I didn't participate, I think, mm -hmm. is is a rougher road to go than to empathize with what was that like mm -hmm. like hearing you growing up in Santa Ana I, I yeah. empathize yeah. that's what I because when you were telling me about your principal I cried mm -hmm. bro I mean you have it on film tears came out of my eyes because yeah. how dare you do that to a little boy yeah how yeah. dare you See you know that hurts me that's the empathy and that's in our generation yeah that I can empathize right. with then I can share my story but see, we've or connected. another story. We've connected and yeah. you shared with me that. Now I know and it hurts me. So now I'm like, 
ah, I, like mm. I do have a different, I have a deeper, mm. yes. I do, I have a mm. deeper respect for you, brother. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sorry that happened to you. I am. I'm yeah. so sorry. I love yeah. you. Yeah. Hey, for anybody to ever say that to you, brother, it breaks my heart because I see that little boy and you're one of my best friends. You're one of my best friends. I love you. I'm sorry. Empathy towards him, but it also creates empathy towards every other black person you see. Mm -hmm. Because now I know in a way that I didn't know before is like, ooh, that's a tough journey. Yeah. You know, that, now that creates reconciliation. Because I can't reconcile something that 150 years ago, like you said, that I was not a part of. Mm -hmm. I can see the horrors of it and I can't even imagine that. Mm And, and stuff, but now it's like, you know, um, I, I have that empathy, yeah. you know, because I know you and I mm-hmm. knew it in my own world and I grew up in it. And I also have empathy, that, you know, my, most of my fights growing up were protecting an underdog. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's a seed of it, like you said, I was 99% not in it, mm-hmm. but I had to be in it. I was, yeah. you know, looking for this and I wasn't going the Martin Luther King, I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm fighting mm-hmm. for what we have. And it's like, I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. I would fall into those camps. Yes. I would fall yes. into that camp yeah. for sure. Yeah. And, uh, but now we can fight more effectively. Yes. And it is like you said, the mm-hmm. proximity, it is like relating to the, you didn't do nothing wrong. So I can understand the anger and you know, I want to make you hurt like I hurt mm-hmm. or like my people before hurt. Yeah. And I want to hurt like that. But knowing what we know, we know there's no, that there's no, there's no wind to that mm-hmm. because pain, but getting, you know, hurt, hurting those who hurt us mm-hmm. doesn't win anything. Switching power. It just, it's just going to switch power, it's just, which yeah. is fine. But I'm going to be over here building the kingdom of God, loving people, connecting with my brother and, you know, and him connecting with me. Yeah. Even if black people started owning white people, I know Daniel would be my friend. Right. You know what I'm saying? I'd be your master. (laughs) You better be kind. (laughs) Be a kind one. Jesus is watching, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Amen. But I think that's the answer Mm -hmm. is proximity, is empathy, and and being involved to a degree like so that means we have to live intentionally, Joe, right? Absolutely. Every Christian has an obligation to live intentionally mm-hmm. with the love that they've been so freely given. Reconciling people to God, to to each other. So if I'm online fighting with somebody on how they vote or what they, you know, I'm wasting my time. Absolutely. And I'm misrepresenting Christ. Yeah. I'd be much more uh, effective to, tell me why you vote that way. Mm-hmm. Tell me your story. Yes. You yes, know, what, yes. well, where did you come from? Where, yeah. where, how did you get to this place yeah. rather than, you know, you're at this place mm-hmm. and now I'm judging you for being at this place. It's like that judgment is at best very, you know, with very minimal insight because yeah. I don't know nothing, yeah. you know, and wisdom and well, knowledge is power. The more I know about you, the more I understand. Oh, like you said, I'm yes. in your shoes. Yes. Like you said earlier, how would a white guy feel about that? Mm-hmm. You know, how would this person feel like that? Mm-hmm. How does it feel to be, you know, 
to, to struggle. To be, to like be that. attacked for the color of your skin. Yeah. Why? Do, how does it feel to have that? So yeah, especially so at I that age, say, that's yeah. what really yeah. got me, yeah. man. Yeah. Like I, you know, I'm an adult. I can deal with things. Yeah, and I'm sure you can too. And I Name think, like you know, stuff. you know, Chris's response is, is you know, of course, you know, you can't apologize for what somebody else did. You can't repent. For somebody else's actions right, in the past, right, right. but you can lament. Absolutely, you can Absolutely. say when if a black person says, "Man, I'm so angry, man. Look what they did to me a hundred years ago," or "Look at these lynch and look at that." And you can say, "Brother, man, I, I'm feeling your pain. Oh man, man, you must be hurting, brother. And man, I'm I am, sorry for that. I am yeah. so sorry, man, that 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 happened. You know, and that happened to you. I, I just so regret that happened. How can I?" You know, yeah. let me, How can I comfort you? Yes, comfort you. I don't have to make it right. I can't make it right. I can't make something you like can. that right. Absolutely. I can only comfort you. Yeah. In the moment, yeah. and do you know, and be. Yeah, available. I can empathize. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I can sit with you. Let me buy you a cup of coffee. Yeah, let's, let's sit break bread. You, you want somebody to talk to? Yeah. Let's let's do. This. That's a good point. Let's breaking pray. bread. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Breaking bread yeah. is is intimate. Yes. You don't break bread with people that you don't care about. Right. Food has a way of, yes. they call it comfort food. It has a way of breaking down barriers when you're sharing with somebody else. It yeah. just kind of breaks down the barriers and, yeah. and opens people up to each other. It starts yeah. a process. Yes, Amen. absolutely. It starts yeah. a process. Yeah. A That's a good point, yeah. And again, we have a responsibility as believers in Christ mm -hmm. to be brave enough to take that step. Absolutely. Yeah. To, instead of, you know... Yeah. It's the same old, so, same old, right? And I'm so proud of you guys because you, you do that regularly. Yeah. You do that regularly. Whether they're homeless, because mm -hmm. all those homeless people, you know, we can badmouth them and, and mm -hmm. beat them up in every way, in, at least in our minds and hearts. But each one of those people have a story. Yes. They and they didn't get that way mm -hmm. from nothing. Yeah. What's the story? And, you know, and that spending a time with them rather than looking at, oh my God, yeah. it's them. <laughs> yeah. Over and over and over again, yeah. the, especially in Acts, the disciples, they would, they would get together and they would go, hey, yeah. but just don't remember, remember, yeah. just remember the poor. Yeah. Whatever you do, yeah. remember to feed yeah. the, poor. the poor. Do this, this, and this, but whatever you do, remember yeah. the poor. Yeah. Remember, so it's like be empathetic, be willing to get down to somebody's level and understand them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I didn't mean I meant get down to their level because we're all like in different places. I didn't mean like right, right. You know, right. I'm coming down to your, yeah, you're beneath me. I'm not saying no, like you that. Know, so wherever you're at, that's where I'm coming. I'm coming there because whatever. you are valuable. Yes, you know, and you're valuable enough to me that. Time spent with you mm -hmm. is good with me. Yeah, you know, good. and uh, so yeah, I, I think the way you do racial reconciliation is proximity. But I think each individual believer has an obligation to walk out the gospel. Amen. You know, I think of uh, Galatians five twenty two. If, if you're walking in the Spirit, you look at all the fruits of the Spirit: love, kindness, forgiveness. There ain't no room for racism. If you're, in any of that. if you're walking in the Spirit, then you, you're gonna you're, you're gonna manifest all of those fruits to whoever you're dealing with Amen. and whatever they're doing. If they're yeah. angry and calling you a, a, a dog racist, and you just, brother, I feel your pain. You know, how can I love you? How can I be paid? I mean, it's, yeah. Is there yeah. fruit of judgment? Yes, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, listen, or just shake it off. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of the pelting, I think, comes as you scroll your phone. It's, yeah. it's the beast. It's the system that's mm -hmm. telling us these things, which really you got to take with a grain of salt. Well, know? they offer no solution. Amen. Yeah.
So why would I feed myself with that fire hose? Yeah. Why would I do that? If there's no solution, just information, a mm -hmm. fire hose of information, mm -hmm. but no solution. Why? When I have a book that's mm -hmm. thousands of years old that has not been thwarted, not one word of it, mm -hmm. to, to rest, that's where I stake my claim, yes. the word of God yes. in the Bible. Mm -hmm. What does the word of God say yeah. about this? How am I supposed to operate with them? Well, since I That's am now I a child of God, I belong to a family, and this family is inclusive mm -hmm. of all those who would come. Mm -hmm. and, and, we are inclusive, and, we are empathetic, we are loving, we are generous, we are kind, mm -hmm. we are, we're soft, we, 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 we're, but we stay in the truth. So we love each other as God loves us. Amen. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to close then with that. Any last word of information? You got anything for us, Daniel? I, I was just going to say that, you know, what's, what's important in, in, in doing racial reconciliation is that we, we don't want, we don't want the, the gospel to be minimized, you know? And so I think the priority is the gospel, you know, preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel. That's the priority because that's what changes people's hearts. You change people's hearts, you change their behavior, you change how they relate to each other. So I think we have to make sure we keep the gospel the priority. Amen. Over I agree everything. 100%. Yeah. I, I'll say it like this, that, that we, we have an obligation as Christ followers to feed ourselves with the word, mm -hmm. um, not our phones, not the TV. I know all of us are going to be on it. All of us have, you know, but make sure you have a healthy diet because you will. It is impossible to go as deep into what we're talking about being empathetic when somebody's coming at you if you need to be soaked with the word you need to be soaked in the spirit you, you really need to be fed with the truth that god loves me i i am a child of god like he's first and foremost i'm a child of god so mm -hmm. call me whatever name you want to call me it's okay mm -hmm. i've been redeemed um well then my identity isn't in my color Yes. It's not in anything else. My identity is but, in being so, a family. So none of the minutia mm -hmm. will affect. Now I can, you know, we can op we can have killer conversations like today yes. and nobody's upset. Right. This is how we change the world. Yeah. This is how we fix a broken mm -hmm. uh, perception, I guess. And I it's mean, in our sphere of influence. So, amen. We don't have worldwide influence, but in my world of mm -hmm. influence... If I live that out, what you guys are saying, I will have great impact in healing damaged people because that is the bottom line. We're damaged, we're flawed, and we need God. And here's the truth. Here's the truth. That will be what is going on. That's how God builds his kingdom. As the world gets crazier and crazier, because read your Bible, it's not going to get better, people. It's going to get crazier and weirder. We will still have that mm -hmm. community of peace we mm -hmm. will still be friends Amen. and brothers and you know we will still be ministering empathy and the gospel of jesus christ which is love and inclusivity mm -hmm. inclusivity um with the faith that we have in the finished work that he did yeah. Yeah. amen
Thank you guys. I really appreciate you taking your time to come here today. And uh, I think we got room for, for another Ten session at some point. <laughs> I was just getting started. Yeah. 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 We have to go to commercial break yeah. now. Yeah. 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 Season three. Yeah. And, uh,